0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Nick Balters and I, Niels karstrup where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Nick, great to be back with you this week. Just before we all go away on
1: for holidays, I guess, how are you doing? Are you all prepared for it? I'm so very much looking forward to it, Niels. Like, genuinely, it's been quite a year, so I'm just looking forward to the break. And I'm doing very well. How are you?
0: Good. Yes, all well here. Uh, Just came back from the US, so a little bit jet lagged, maybe a little bit underprepared, but I'm sure we're going to get through our conversation today. We got a solid lineup, as usual, and uh, four papers, actually, uh, or papers, articles that we're going to be tackling. Um, But before we do that, I always enjoy hearing what um, kind of kept you
1: interested, busy, uh, or what's been on your radar since we last spoke. You wouldn't be surprised. I think the um, the asset price moves we've seen in the last um, month or so have been quite substantial. Uh, you know whether that has had an impact on on our beloved strategy uh, trend following, which it has had. Uh, it's one thing, but certainly the macro environment, with like equities now up 20 22 percent or whatever that 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 is, obviously at, at, at year high levels, you no know, rate significant move uh, with the yield reduction being quite aggressive in the last month or so. Um, the dollar moves as well. Seen some of the frontier commodity markets, uh, you know, continuing some strong rallies. Um, so these have kept us uh, certainly busy um, as we as we get closer to to year end. The other thing that was actually very interesting on, on my way in this morning, I was kind of reading the news and um, uh, Cliff fastness has um has an interview, like a, I guess a cover story by by Robin uh, at the FT. Um, I didn't have the time to go through the whole lot because it's actually quite lengthy. But there was this one thing that kind of caught my attention um, and that was kind of his view that with the proliferation of data and, and, and the hypothesis that the more we know about the markets and, and, and the data becoming available and we consume the data using computing power and so on and so forth, you would think markets become more efficient. But he's making the claim that in his career, probably we're now seeing markets becoming less efficient in, 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 in lack of capacity of absorbing and consuming all this data. And I thought this was like an interesting point, right? Because I think every time we think about data, we're like, yeah, we become smarter. So that's um, that's the thing that caught my attention this morning. Cliff his view on, on efficiency.
0: Yeah, no, I'm going to listen to that uh, or read that uh, interview. I think that's a very interesting uh, and, of course, counterintuitive uh, and therefore typical Cliff-type um, statement to make. Obviously, if he's listening to our conversation, Nick, today, we would love to have him come on the podcast. We've had other people from EQR on the podcast uh, before, and uh, of course, Cliff uh, is more than welcome to come and discuss things like that and other interesting stuff that he uh, touches, uh, of course. Yeah, and I will just concur with you that, yeah, it has been really a month driven by uh, some big moves, not least, uh, I would say, encouraged by uh, central banks, I would say. Fed statements, BOJ statements and and retractions and statements it has been a bit crazy. So we'll see where it all ends. Um, I was noticing yesterday that my trend barometer actually closed yesterday at 66. I think that's the highest number we've seen all year. All year has been just range trading uh, in a weak to neutral level. Now it's breaking out to the upside, probably too late to kind of quote-unquote save the year for trend followers, um, but it might be an interesting start to the new year uh, should this uh, continue. And on that note, uh, speaking of the trend barometer, uh, I did get a a question and unfortunately I didn't write down who who the question was from, but it came I think via Spotify where people can comment on the episodes. And, um, and the person asked whether I could explain the trend barometer. So if you are listening to this conversation, what I'll do instead is to say, send me an email at info at because the trend barometer was featured uh, back in 2011 in Hedge Fund Journal. And I found the article and I'll, I'll be happy to share that article uh, with you. So if you just email me, then I will be sure to send that article. And that gives a a better explanation of the trend barometer that we have time for here uh, in our recording today. Speaking of performance, um, well, still a little bit on a soft note for the year 2023 and December, maybe as well after yesterday. Um, But before uh, yesterday's uh, moves, uh, the beta 50 was down only 30 basis points for the month, down 1.3% for the year. Obviously nothing compared to The uh, 15% it made last year, so not a big deal. SOCGEN CT index up 43 basis points as of Wednesday, down 2.28% for the year. But again, it it pales in comparison with the 20% it made last year. Socgen trend up 78 basis points, down 3.11% for the year. Clearly, it's going to be a bit lower after yesterday's big moves, but still... A very small loss compared to the 27.29% it made last year. And the SockGen Short-Term Traders Index, which uh, is up for the month as of Wednesday, up 15 basis points. It's down 2% for the year, so very much in line with the other indices. Um, And just to remind people, it was up 11.25% in 2022. Now, you already mentioned equities doing well. MSCI up for the month 3.48% as of yesterday. Up more than 20% now for the year. World Government Bond Index um, doing well again this month, uh, up 2.39% for the month. I don't have the year-to-date number, but I think it's around 12% or something like that. Don't quote me on that. Um, And the S&P 500 Total Return Index uh, up 3.32% for the month, up 22.92% percent so far this year. Now, before we dive into uh, the topics we have lined up, the four papers that I mentioned or articles, Nick, uh, we did get a couple of questions in. The first one came in a while back, but you and I haven't been recording because last time I think it was Alan who uh, sat in for me. So um, so this one is a little bit old, but hopefully Nicholas who wrote it um, is still listening uh, to the podcast. So I'm going to try and read it. It's a bit complicated, and so I'm probably going to mess up the wording a little bit, but there we are. That's when you have the combination of being non-English, n- uh, native, and dyslectic. Uh, dyslectic. So, but anyway, let's go for it. Uh, Nick, Nicholas writes... Trend following with sharp ratio includes both fo- uh, both following price action and the way price action is done, which should mimic trend following price action plus vol scaling each asset. As Nick Bolter said, vol scaling introduces some reversal as prices accelerates if vol is calculated as standard deviation, and thus using vol scaling makes pure trend following less trend following. If using sharp ratio as price and trend-following sharp ratio. In this view, trend-following only, then pure price action plus vol scaling should then remain trend-following and not trend-following plus some reversal. Could you please ask Nick Bolters what his thoughts are about that? And then Nicholas goes on to say, I use, for time series and cross-sectional, among others, sharp ratio because as written above, So that signal is a combination of the price performance part and the behavioral part. The nice thing about that is that when an asset trend in percent, the percentage price momentum is stable with low vol, if vol is calculated as standard deviation. So the position is increased, whereas if the percentage price momentum accelerates up or down, the vol increases more than the price acceleration, As vol uses delta in squares of returns, so the sharp declines and the signal slash position is reduced. If percentage price momentum decreases, performance decreases with increasing vol. For the same fixed uh, and variable is even better, look back period for signal changes faster than pure price when volatility comes in and slower when volatility decreases. Now, that was a bit of a mouthful. I hope people kind of got the gist of it. And more but more importantly, I hope you got the gist of it, <laughs> Nick. And so let's just focus on this. And I guess the core of this question is, can you replace price with sharp and trend follow that signal instead or that input instead?
1: Okay, yeah, that, that's a convoluted question. Um, so there's various parts in it. I would possibly split it into two. I think the first part is how we think about kind of basic, not in a bad way, trend following or core trend following, and then how we end up building a portfolio and scaling different asset classes and allowing a portfolio to operate in a holistic manner where risk is appropriately allocated between and within asset classes. So, And when we look into historical returns and we use that as a signal, the first thing we need to get right is the direction, which in itself comes from the sign of that return. So we want to go long the appreciating markets, go short the depreciating markets, and that's about it. Now then the question becomes, how do we introduce those signals into a portfolio? And then the problem that we always face is that we have very different asset classes and volatility profiles. So the volatility scaling is in one way or the other, tried to account for it. Now, the important point that we would have to think through is whether this vol scaling acts in favor or against us trying to follow a trend, right? For instance, if the trend propagates in a higher vol dynamic, then certainly the signal itself drops. So we can think of this vol scaling in a way as a moderation signal following extreme moves. It's almost like a, a, a gain crystallization exercise. So the bigger the trend becomes, if it comes at disproportionately higher volatility, the signal itself drops if we think of the signal as a sharp ratio. So the way I think about it is more about making sure we don't completely cannibalize trend, which I don't believe we do, but then be very prudent on how we build risk management in the portfolio. So to go back to the initial part of the, of the question, when we monitor Sharpe ratios, then we have a unit that is compatible across the markets. So then the question becomes, does that allow us to call it a risk budget in an optimization profile? And that's exactly what I personally like to do. Think of a risk budget, which is a number that every asset is contributing with all of them being in the same unit and Sharpe ratio allows, allows for it. Now if we become too worried about the Sharpe ratio being calculated using historical volatility and therefore going against some trendy activity in the extremes we might as well use a different measure of vol simply to scale things in um you know on, on equal footing so we can use long term vol or or we can use a vol that doesn't uh, you know include the most recent data I think there's a scaling exercise here which is different to prudent risk management and I do see the point of Yes, I want to follow those trends. And you know, if you moderate that by you know, a spike in vol, you might kind of go against, not necessarily go against the trend in direction, but kind of reducing the exposure, right? But personally, I feel more comfortable also moderating those extreme positions because I think of it more as a concentration risk that is piling up unless we control somehow for it. Um, I don't think there's something that is wrong or right here. I think it's just a matter of perspective. Um, and I, I, I prefer the vol scaling of the signal that then becomes a risk budget in the portfolio optimization uh, stage.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that uh, that answer, and and um, I think for me, in a in a much more um, less academic way uh, to think of it, is that well, first of all, I, I obviously heard this the argument many times that um, that's made by people who don't volscale scale to say, well, if you vol scale, you somehow have a smaller position on, and therefore you're going to make less money uh, from the trends. And, um, you know, uh, two things. One, since most large managers today probably do use some kind of dynamic position sizing, um, not only uh, related to volatility, could be related to other things like correlation. I don't think they would all have come to the same conclusion if it, in fact, was damaging the overall returns. So I think probably... The evidence is on the side of having dynamic position sizing is better. Now, philosophically, people may disagree, and that's fine. And the other thing is, I think the general discussion uh, needs a, a little bit of a nuance because you always hear about, well, then you will have smaller positions on, and if and you're gonna you're gonna miss out on these big outliers. But from my simple observations, and I think also from some of the work that Katie Kaminsky may have done, and that is that, and, and actually potentially some of the, one of the papers we're going to be talking about today, but my, my view is that I actually think that when trends are really strong, volatility tends to drop. And therefore, it shouldn't actually penalize the position size in my view volatility tends to increase around turning points all consolidate all phases of consolidation and there you could say well then it's actually makes sense to reduce position size so we're not going to get into that debate today but this is just to say that i think that um it it's it's not as simple as as it sounds um and um, but obviously an interesting um, thought that
1: uh, that Nicholas presented. I think um, the the good the good thing that you're making without extending that um, much further is um, is that vol scaling in itself at its core has a momentum flavor, specifically when you have this negative correlation between returns and volatility innovations. So when the vol is spiking and the market is falling. And that's typically in the more pro-growth assets. Equities for sure, possibly commodities, less so in the rest. At times, it's actually the exact opposite as it was in the 70s when, when yields were, were rising at a very slow pace. Um, but this is helping trend following above and beyond just getting the direction right, as you, as you rightly point out. And I think one example to add value to those statements is to think about how a reversion strategy operates. And in a reversion strategy, you most likely have a vol spike that is generating the opportunity, but then vol scaling is going to go completely against the signal. So I think that's the point I was making in the beginning, making sure we don't cannibalize the signal we try to follow by vol scaling. It doesn't happen in trends. Sometimes it might be moderating it. Um, I think it becomes much more uh, of, a, of a consideration when we look into reversion dynamics. Yeah. So I agree the with you 100%. I'm...
0: Yeah. And the other argument, by the way, Nick, that I've heard uh, people say who uh, don't agree with my view uh, is that, oh, yeah, but I'm definitely not going to use wall scaling because if I'm short equities and equities are expanding its volatility because they're quote unquote crashing, I don't want to be reducing my short exposure. Well, hang on. Um, we can have melt ups. I mean, in many commodity markets, the big price moves are actually to the upside. And even now at the moment, I would say we're kind of almost seeing melt in equities uh, as well. So it goes both ways. It's not just this simple way of thinking about uh, how markets move uh, and that you only think about the one situation where there's an equity crash. It, that's just a small part of how markets behave. Anyways, let's leave that aside. Let's move on to another question that came in from... Our friend Andrew over at 40in20out, the old turtle system that he publishes every day. He writes, and actually the question that Andrew sent, I got it last night. Unfortunately, he sent it for the our group recording, uh, the year-end recording, which is being published next week and the following week. But unfortunately, we had just finished recording uh, our conversation yesterday. Uh, so, uh, so, Andrew, um, we will deal with your question uh, now, even though, I'm not so sure we can deal with it properly because I'm not entirely sure how uh, you, you are referring to this pyramiding. But anyways, let's um, let's dive into it. So Andrew is writing, um, first you do uh, the investment community, a great service. So of course we appreciate that and, and likewise. Assuming a protective initial stop is always in place. We've heard this year from advocates of one entry, one exit system, and one entry, reduce risk, vault targeting, take profits as it goes systems, but so far I haven't heard many talking about add-ons within a single trading system. I'm not including multiple signals for multiple systems increasing a long or short exposure as trades develop, but hardcore, pyramiding, cannonball, press-winning trades variety. Um, I like the colourful wording here, Andrew. I'm sure we've all tested thoroughly, and at least for me personally, in an earlier life, add-ons accounted for a lot of my own gains. But I feel like many managers I speak to now have gotten aw- have gone away from this. Hard to say. And and then he's asking whether we can comment on these add-ons playing a critical role now. Andrew, both Nick and I looked at your question and we weren't 100% sure what you really mean, what triggers this pyramiding effect. Um, clearly, we understand that it's not additional uh, entry confirmation, so we understand that. But what is then triggering it, we're a little bit uncertain uh, about. But I do understand the concept. I guess the idea is that if you're in a trend, it's going your way, you're building up um, you know, lots of open profits, you want to basically you know put the the accelerator to the floor and just give it uh, full speed maybe there are some managers doing that but i agree with you it's probably quite few so i guess the question for you nick is is there any validity in considering having some kind of additional accelerator in a in a in a system and if so can you even think of a, of something that could be used for
1: such a thing so as you were reading through the question, I kind of I, I was thinking through again what possibly um, could be the gist of it and I have like two possible scenarios here you know scenario number one is those add-ons uh, being just features in the strategy that do not change its core in other words, you're still doing trend following you have one signal to enter. You have one signal to exit, or possibly dynamic position sizing would, anyway, dynamically uh, decide upon it. And then, whether we add other features here, those being, for instance, let's say we can execute more quickly in the market by some sort of intraday integration, or we introduce some cap in the positioning, or we use features for the signal itself to either be more responsive, less responsive, possibly dynamic. Uh, look back window, scaling. These are all features? Sorry.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And the other thing I'm thinking of when I listen to you is that because Andrew is looking for for some kind of pyramiding, I imagine that open profit would play a role, right? So if you have a lot of open profit, you can somehow increase your position sizing for that particular trade somehow. Uh, I'm just speculating here. Which you kind of do, by the way. You know, dynamic position size. With Which the... we kind of do, but obviously not maybe as aggressive as Andrew is looking for. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. exactly. Um, so so there's certainly the feature that I think the design itself, it, if it has dynamic position sizing and, and correlation volatility adjustments, it already accounts for it. Now, the other reading that I have and by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of having those important features in the design from a concentration risk perspective and, and limiting um, the positions you know, in the context of the road portfolio. The other reading that I have is having non-trend features. And whether, for example, information about the term structure or information about other price movements, which are away from kind of the average historical path, which is the typical momentum signal, right? Whether we look into information in the tails and we've discussed that actually last time with Alan as to whether there is value bringing in conviction from different sources of information rather than just features in the design. So it's not the same thing right you know, One is about how can I build a better and more robust trend system that possibly becomes opportunistic at times. The other one is how we can interact with trend following systems, other sources of information, whether that is in a time series or a cross-sectional manner that brings value, not because we're harvesting more efficiently trends, but rather because we're introducing other features, right? Which is another place I'm, 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 I'm very close and focused on um, uh, in terms of developing. The one thing I would say is that in the latter case, we would have to make sure, at least in my view, that if we, lay, if we introduce some sort of carry sources, we're not going to go against trend itself, right? You know, when we build trend-following systems, at the end of the day, we're capturing principal components. Equities, will kind of move together, so we'll be a bit more pro-equities or anti-equities, depending on their aggregate movement. And the same happens across all the other asset classes. Adding other features here, in my view, should capture higher-order principal components. They should net out the beta. They should net out what equities do. You know, we would not want to I don't know, sell bonds if if yields invert and the carry becomes negative, while at the same time, price momentum hasn't caught up because then we're kind of eating up whatever each and every strategy is trying to achieve, right? I would look at it more as a cross-sectional feature. So I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, um, but this is how I'm reading it. Systems and features in place in the design of a core trend strategy versus non-trend features that can still bring value as higher conviction at times the trend in that trend itself is not is not enough to capture okay. there you
0: are yeah no fine thanks um i i hope andrew uh, can work with that <laughs> so to speak then uh, you found four uh, well we i guess we combined find four articles slash papers that we thought could be interesting to discuss uh this week And one of them is from our friends over at Quantica. Uh, I know you like their research, so do I. And in their Q4 quarterly insight paper, um, they talk about uh, or they try to quantify the asset class return contribution and total performance of a medium to long-term trend following strategy. strategy. Uh, Interestingly enough, during different uh, volatility regimes as we just talked about, and not actually only restricted to volatility of equities. So as usual, I'm gonna let you steer us through this paper.
1: Yes, um, and you're right. We you know we like the um, the work that the quantile guys are putting together. Um, it's always quite insightful, and they pick nice topics to to provide some some insights on. So the the latest one, as you said, I think the genesis of it comes from the fact that we think that trend following provides some sort of convexity. Capturing the tails, the tails are quite consistent and, sorry, persistent, um, and therefore capturing them uh, brings, brings value to a trend follower. So that I, I believe they pose the question of does trend go long vol? Um, you know, and does trend perform in high vol regimes and so on and so forth? And I think the nice analysis they put in place, which we have actually done ourselves, and I'll, I'll, I'll comment upon that using some of our own research, they first look into VIX and they say well this is the historical VIX path for the you know from from two thousands until until today um you know we identify low medium and high volatility regimes they do it in a way that high and low volatility regimes are the top and bottom 16 percent of the quarters in that sample period um they use this 16 percent because you know, thinking about a normal distribution top, 16% bottom is basically one sigma move away from the bulk of the distribution, which is assumed to be normal times. And then they try to see how trend following or a classical medium-term implementation of trend following perform in those three regimes. But then they go one step further and say, listen, I have equities, commodities, rates, effects, eats of weeds, has its own realized volatility dynamics. They don't necessarily have to go hand in hand. So let me try to break down asset class contribution across asset class volatility regimes. So you can now see how this goes, right? You have like, you know, four asset classes and four volatility profiles per asset class. So you end up having like, you know, a four by four matrix of how things perform when other vols are moving or not moving. And then you have like the low, the high, and the vol regime. There's a, there's a bit of detailed in in all this analysis i think the high level information that they try to put to, to put out is that it is not just a one way street that trend followers do well in high vol regimes they actually find that a trend following system just look at it from a vix perspective does well in high vol as well as low vol and less so in 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 the average right um and this uh, this is a A result that we also kind of agree with, I know we've done similar analysis and and we find the same thing. So when VIX is very high or VIX is very low, then trend following performs. Interestingly, for the high vol regimes, the outperformance comes from historically uh, fixed income, whereas in the low vol regime comes from equities. And in the middle part, all asset classes contribute, but in aggregate, they don't contribute as much as the overall performance appears to be in low and high vol regime. So this kind of U profile, U shape profile um, seems to um, seems to exist also in the volatility space. Now when they look into realized vol which is different to looking into VIX. VIX is the expected 30 day volatility in the equity market in in, um, in the US. So they look into realized volatility of the equity markets which are more than just the US. They look into realized volatility in FX and rates and so on and so forth. What they find which is quite interesting, is that each and every asset class performs the best in its trend following formulation in the respective low volatility regime. So equities perform better in the low realized volatility of equities, effects perform better in the low realized volatility of effects, and so on and so forth. Um, which I think is an interesting finding, but then they go one step further and say, well, does volatility across asset classes kind of move in, in, in tandem? And 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 they find, and I think that's an interesting result. Not that we did not know, but it's actually nice to see it in in um, uh, in a research in a research report. When commodities, for example, are exhibiting high volatility, it doesn't necessarily mean that equities exhibit high volatility too. So they run this analysis of um, kind of intersecting volatility regimes across the classes and how frequently or less frequently they happen to be at the same time in low or high vol regimes, and that doesn't happen that often. And I think they make this nice example that over the last one year or it's actually this year, 2023, um, the volatility in the interest rate markets has been at the highest levels we have seen in the last 35 years or so, I think it's like a 90th percentile, uh, whereas for all the others is extremely low, like you know, 10, 20, 30th percentile. So this has been a period whereby interest rate volatility has been dominant, but we have not seen that in, in, in the other asset classes. All in all, it is, again, a story about diversification and how different volatility regimes allow trend followers to operate, but I think it's more about going beyond just being long vol, which is not necessarily the case, um, and they showcase that. The one point I would add, which I think is very important, and I, you know, it would be nice to also see them kind of expanding this analysis in this regard, is that a volatility regime is different to a transitioning into a high vol regime or a low vol regime. So we can do the same analysis not by the level of vol, but by the change in, the, in that level. Um, and, and it's very different to then look into the performance as you transition into a high vol regime vis-a-vis being in the high vol regime. So we've done this analysis looking into changes in the level of VIX or changes in the level of implied volatility in rates by, by, by using move. And once you do that, then the result is not exactly the same. So you still do find that trend following performs as you experience volatility spikes but you end up underperforming in relative terms when the VIX is moderating and I think that's the time whereby following the initial spike there is some sort of possibly mean reversion um, and, 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 and transition into a new regime and I think this reshuffling of asset prices in falling not low, in falling volatility uh, is causing so state versus transitioning into a state is not the same thing. And I think that's a nice analysis as a follow-up to to, to this piece of work. But that's it. it I, I agree with the analysis, and and I think that's how we'll expand upon it.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a very good insight from you uh, to, to the paper. Um, and maybe as a little follow-up comment slash question for you, Nick, because given what I said to you earlier today, where I said my observation is that actually when trends are strong they're not very volatile, and where we make most money is really from following these trends that just keep going in a nice, uh, smooth way. So maybe it's not surprising that trend following does best in quote-unquote low vol regimes, because that's exactly, uh, you know, what, what this refers to.
1: I think the challenge is how much a low vol regime uh, is similar to a whipsaw market. And I think that's the challenge. Uh you know, if we see like a whip market with low volatility, then still it's not like the environment that trend can 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 substantially add value. But I don't disagree with you.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh let's move on, let's break some bad trends. Um and let's do that with a paper by the same name, breaking bad trends, um, by one of our previous guests, uh Cam Harvey, uh Christian Golding and Michelle uh Mazzolini three people who have written a paper about perhaps the reason why trend following was challenged since the great financial crisis, at least for uh, a few years. This um, is, I don't think it's a new paper, I can't remember, um, but uh, it's definitely an interesting one. So I will let you again guide us through their findings and um, whether we can break some bad trends.
1: Yes, so this, this paper, uh, as you said, has been out for some time. I think the reason why I picked it up now is because, um, because it was just published at the Financial Analyst Journal. Um, so certainly in this regard, you know, went through the, the vetting phase of looking into the results and the analysis. It's been out for about two, three years. Uh, you know, it was initially done, um, you know, within the Research Affiliates premises, as far as I understand, you know, uh, with, with the three individuals being there. Um, I think the genesis of it, um, was an attempt to understand why trend following did not perform that well between 2010 and 2020. I think that's where it came from. Now, obviously, you know, having had COVID, and and 2022 being um, uh, being a very very strong year, we can now read through um, this analysis from a different lens. Uh, but you know, notwithstanding that, I think the results are quite quite interesting to see. Uh, we have discussed it. Probably in, in in the first time I was here about a year ago, um, as to how we think or how I think, uh, 2010 and 2020 evolved. So what they say, you know, as you said, the, the, the title is called "Breaking Bad Trends," and the whole thing starts by saying, "Listen, when does a trend strategy underperform?" Well, clearly, when a trend that I'm trying to deploy is breaking. So whether an upward trend drops or a downward trend um, kind of recovers and rebounds this is when a trend-following strategy is going to do badly. Um, So they go down the route of A, quantifying or identifying those trends and how how can we measure them, you know, their frequency and and, and their occurrence. But then they go one step further and say, okay, now that I have identified a way to measure bad trends or breaking trends, can I incorporate them in a dynamic variation of a trend-following strategy? Um, you know the, the formulation is quite simple, and I think sometimes simplicity has 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 a virtue, right? And, and value. Um, and they say, well, let me follow a long-term trend, twelve months, and a very short term. Let's call it one month, two month, three month. They run the analysis with a two month, but they have some robustness on 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 the other windows as well. Um, and I will simply look into the direction. So I'm not looking into the magnitude. I'm not doing any dynamic position sizing in this regard. If the one-month signal or two-month signal um, and the 12-month signal disagree, then we clearly have a case of a trend break because the long-term signal says you need to go long, the short-term signal tells you to go short and vice versa. So I'm entering into a transition mode because whatever I can document in my long-term window is not necessarily reflecting the short-term window. So how do I operate? So they do that on a monthly basis across a variety of markets, and they start um, effectively counting how frequently those breaks happen, um, both across assets as well as through time. And obviously, they find that in the period between 2010 and 2020, uh, the frequency of those breaks was much higher than any historical standard. And that is a mechanical explanation why, for example, trend following did not perform. And, and they also make a connection with another interesting piece of work that AQR had done a few years back that looks into the magnitude of the moves and the frequency of those moves. And, and they had said, well, listen, in these 10 years, we have seen the frequency of big moves dropping, which in itself suggests that if you don't observe significant market moves, more, more likely than not, you have had um, trends breaking. So putting everything together, you know, everything is consistent with the fact that mechanically in those 10 years, um, you know, trends were breaking more often, magnitudes of the moves were not as excessive, and that mechanically explains what was going on. I think in this show we have discussed so many times what are my views about the Fed put and the fundamental certainty, but let me not go down that route, uh, but just stay stay, stay, within, stay within this piece of work. So documenting that is one thing, incorporating it into a strategy is another thing. And the way they suggest putting it forward is in the following way. As soon as I observe those two signals, medium-term and long-term agreeing, I'm either in a bull market, if both are positive, or in a bear market, if both are negative. In which case, I'm going to deploy my exposure as I would have anyway. Right? I'm going to go longer, I'm going to go short. But then there's some form of dynamic position sizing here that comes with the average of the disagreement between the two signals when they end up disagreeing. So if today the long-term signal tells you to go long and the short tells you to go short, it means that you have a correction phase. And conversely, if the long-term signal is negative but the short is positive, you have a rebound. So then you would want to kind of blend those two. Obviously, doing it on equal footing would mean that I need to go long, I need to go short, do nothing. But they make the point whereby how about I try to, on, a, on an ongoing basis, on an expanding window basis, asset by asset, try to find what is the linear combination of those two signals, shorter, long-term, that at least historically, for each and every market, had delivered better return. In other words, I think that you know, what they're trying to identify is that say, hey, is this market more likely to rebound if I see a short term rebound, or is it likely to continue? It's very data driven. We can debate as to whether we can believe in this historical mapping of the data and how we fit those models. But their point is I'm going to combine those two signals, but the combination of those two signals at the asset level becomes a dynamic feature. And they do that at each and every asset. And they built a strategy, which is now a combination of assets, each of which is following a short-term signal, a long-term signal. When you have agreement, happy days. When you have disagreement, we have to find the right balance between the two. And they basically show that in the years between 2010 and 2020, the challenging years with more frequent breaks, there is a significant value that is brought from this feature around rebounds and around corrections. So somehow the system becomes more likely to capture those turning points more efficiently so by doing this combination of those two speeds. And seemingly, it's better than having two strategies with two different windows and combining them at the top level. Because I believe their point is that each and every market behaves differently. The way that information is consumed is different. Some markets at some times are following the long-term signals more than the short-term. So I think this dynamism at the asset level is, is again, I'm quoting the analysis, um, is bringing more value than have a short-term strategy, a long-term strategy, and I do a blend of the two, and I go with that. So that's what it's all about. I think the value that I see in this type of work, uh, more broadly speaking, is that there is this consideration of false positives, false negatives. How can we make a system dynamic, but at the same time tractable? I think the only debate I have is how much historical information on this combination between the signals can allow us to have on an out of sample basis, they show evidence that there is value in it. Um so I think it's it I think it was worth kind of um you know commenting upon it specifically following the moves we've seen um you know in the recent in the recent years. And by the way, this year, right? I mean if anything March was was quite a lesson or a reminder. Let's call it a reminder. I think it's well, Um
0: not yeah. only March, I can think <laughs> of November and December and no, as November, well.
1: Yeah. I mean and last November, right? Twenty twenty two? Oh,
0: yeah. Uh, well, first of all, let me just correct one thing because in my introduction to this paper, I think I I, I pronounced uh, Michele's name incorrectly. I said Michelle because that's what it looked like uh, to a dyslexic, but he is a he, and therefore I should have pronounced it differently. So I hope I've corrected it now by um, by naming him Michele Mazzolini. But anyways, Of course, they raise an interesting point, because it's kind of the holy grail, right? Can you somehow know when to be a shorter-term manager and know how when to be a longer-term manager? And of course, this is something that I'm sure all of the research departments at CTAs and and systematic uh, quant firms uh, are trying to solve. Uh, I can only say from our experience, uh, having looked at this uh, for uh, a number of years, there are things you can do, but... At least in the ways we've looking, we have looked at it, there is a cost, uh, and so so I think it comes down to what are you trying to deliver. If you're trying to deliver long term, the highest compound growth, then having too much uh, focus on trying to quote unquote solve shorter term periods of perf- negative performance by being by jumping around between short and long term it's just not gonna pay off if you have other um, objectives then maybe that I can't say whether it could produce a higher sharp or whatever I, I have no idea never done the, the research uh, myself so um but yeah I'm sure we're gonna continue to uh, to look at these things and see if there are things that can um, continue to improve some of the weaknesses that we are fully aware of but again it must be done without taking away all the good stuff that trend following um delivers and i feel sometimes that that's the that's the hardest thing for investors uh and that is to accept that it's not perfect right and and therefore it comes with some bad periods and some drawdowns like we've seen this year But again, relatively speaking, as when we talked about the performance so far this year, the give back, and people already talk about 2023 as being a really bad year for trend following. I'm not so sure I agree with that. I think holding on to most of the gains from 2022 at a time where all traditional investors really needed trend following, the fact that we're giving up a few percentage points this year, probably not more than 10% of the gains from last year, And in a year where then traditional assets are both doing so well, I think it just makes the perfect case for why trend following should be part of the portfolio. But that is, of course, in my um, very biased uh, way. Now, we've got about 15 minutes left, uh, Nick, and um, we have two more articles, I think I would call them that, um, to talk a little bit about. Um, The next one is a little bit related to this, kind of. Um, because it's an article um, called "Managed Futures Rotation," and uh, I unfortunately I don't have the article in front of me, and I forgot to write down the name of the of the gentleman who uh, who wrote it. Uh, it just came in my Twitter feed the other day, and it kind of deals with again one of these things um, that people so uh, much love to spend time on when they invest in trend following. So they make the they make the decision that they want to have an investment in trend following but of course the next question is well can I time it can I move in and out of it can I rotate uh, as the article names uh, suggest so that I can even optimize my return stream from this uh strategy um so um so there are some interesting observations in it maybe people might be surprised by some of the findings but I'm going to lead or let you Kind of just summarize and give your thought about um, the the article, uh, if you don't mind.
1: Yes, 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 for sure. I think I think we've discussed um, we've discussed at, at length this uh, human temptation of of timing, uh, which is hard. Um, and I think the point that they're trying to make in this in this blog entry or article, however you want to call it, is that um, you know they look at, they look empirically into past trend-following returns and future trend-following returns. In other words, can you predict future trend-following performance by looking into the past one year of trend-following? But that's, that's pretty much the, the gist of it. And, um, you know, looking at it, you kind of get a negative correlation between the two. In other words, when trend is doing very well this year, it's going to do worse next year. And when it's doing badly this year, it's going to do better next year. But very, very roughly, um, that's the empirical finding. And then they try to deploy that by saying, well, I'm going to know trend on trend, but I'm going to revert the signal so that it becomes a reversion on my trend. Um, But by doing so, they would not suggest going short trend following, but rather muting the exposure. So either you're moderating the exposure following rallies in the performance, or you're upsizing perform upsizing the exposure uh, following a more muted performance. that's that's basically the, um, the hypothesis. Um, so they run it as a, as a as a simple backtest. test and um, and what you end up finding is that you know some part of the top level performance is kind of improved. Um, there are some subtleties here and, and and I'm going to go into some of the more nitty gritty details at least in the way that I'm reading it. Um, you know one subtlety is that you know when you switch it off, let's say, following extreme market moves, right? And for example, 2014 is, you know, if you if you eyeball the chart, uh, that's when the strategy, when it's quote-unquote timed, is flatlining because you're exiting trend following the first few months of the second half of 2024, or sorry, of 2014. Uh, so one subtlety is that how do you estimate a sharp ratio on a strategy that is not active? Uh, because the vol is, by definition, dropping, right? If I throw zeros in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a return stream, I'm reducing the vault. I mean, surely I'm reducing the return, but this is a subtle way that the sharp ratio can look better. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to put that, uh, it's more like a technicality. Now, why does that behavior exist? And you know, have we seen something similar? We have discussed that in the past and, and, and apologies if I'm kind of repeating similar information, but I, I hope it's interesting in this regard. We've done similar analysis In a timing trend comes up, I think, with two extreme hypotheses. The first one is if there are no trends around, if all my signals are very small, but I still have a volatility budget to to satisfy, I'm starting inflating noisy positions, right? Because apparently there's no trend. I'm making a hypothesis here, right? And the other extreme is that when I see very strong trends, I should actually deploy more, right? Isn't that a self-fulfilling prophecy? Now, obviously, what this article suggests is the exact opposite to what I said, right? You know, when the strategy is not exhibiting trends, I should be deploying more of it, or it's underperforming, I should be deploying more of it, and when it performs very strongly, um, I, should, I should moderate. So we found something similar in the sense that when extreme trends appear and operate and perform, it becomes more likely that some relative I wouldn't call it absolute, but relative underperformance comes through. But there's not much outside of those extremes. I think on the on the other front, you know, if if trends don't perform or if they're less um, uh, less good, you know, we didn't find evidence that we should double up the exposure, for instance. But certainly, we should, you know, there's there's no information whatsoever. So my interpretation of the result, which goes in 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 some way hand in hand with some of our analysis, is when I observe. Can call the barometer, right? The you know the trend barometer. When this is too high, right? When the trend barometer is too high, one hypothesis is that the markets that I'm operating on become more coordinated, right? So some of the equities are performing very well, and some of the commodities are performing very well, and I have some strong trades here and there and here and there. And that's my hypothesis. Now it is likely that the principal drivers of the moves are fewer, right? So the gist of commodities goes up and then the rest kind of follow because they have a beta to this principal component. So I think my view is that there are times like these that a reversion becomes more contagious. It's not one market that is experiencing a very strong trend and I want to continue piling on that because I have confidence upon it let alone all the other risk controls that I have in place, but it's everything going in whichever right direction for my trend-following system at the same time. And that can be, quote-unquote, a worry that a reversion will become contagious. Like, look into the rates market, by the way, in, in, in November, right? That's exactly what happened. No, there have been short positions in, in, in rates throughout the portfolio, across the globe, across tenors, and the massive reversion was so contagious Whichever rates component you have in your portfolio actually underperformed, following you know, better contribution in the earlier days. Um, and I think that's how I see some value in, in this article, but I would not suggest that we can claim that trend following as a strategy can easily be, you know, I guess, deployed with a rotation mechanism on top, uh, like a reversion mechanism, possibly moderating extremes. When all markets become coordinated, it's something worth looking at. Uh, I'm not too convinced by just, you know, moderating the overall exposure following good periods.
0: I appreciate that, Nick. Um, you know, dumbing down the uh, the argument to my level in terms of just uh, again experience of these things. You know, there's this analysis that you see from time to time uh, where people say, "Well." if you um, if you missed the 20 best trading days ever of the S&P 500, your returns are going to go down by 40% or something like that. And I think, obviously, we know, and I did the analysis uh, using Dunn's data, if you've missed the 10 best month, monthly returns since 1984, you, that has a major impact on overall compound returns. And so... So the, again, for, for me, and, and by the way, the, the analysis, I think if you even go further than that, um, should include things like, well, if you try and do that, what impact does it have if you use trend following as part of, say, a multi-asset portfolio, right? And what's interesting, but maybe not surprising, because we all want to try and squeeze out the last drop of performance, is that it seems like we're never satisfied we're never satisfied by the fact that normal trend following just buy and hold trend following in a multi-asset portfolio with stocks and bonds actually improves the uh, returns lowers the drawdowns and and all of that good stuff but it's never enough so that we must there must be things we can do to make it even better and i think by trying to go to these extremes one we overcomplicate things to, I'm not so sure that it's that easy to actually implement and I mean that from a psychological point of view and because it's as you said it's a back test so who knows if anyone has ever tried to do it um, and and frankly I think we should just look at um uh, at the at the evidence and um, and hopefully find comfort uh, and satisfaction in in what it's done and the simplest example really is that as we, uh, mentioned earlier, although this year has not been great for trend following or, or CTAs, it hasn't been awful either. But if you just took a simple allocation of 50% stocks and 50% trend following in the last two years, well wow, it it did exactly what it's meant to do and created a very stable uh return stream in, in two calendar years that can only be described as incredibly unpredictable and very volatile at times so yeah I think just sometimes good enough is good enough and we should be careful not trying to overextend uh, what we think any asset for that matter um, can can deliver um, but that's my my most I, I agree view. with you
1: I think timing timing trend is extremely hard um I think if there's any value is about being conscious and moderating potentially some of the risk budget um, at some at, 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 at some extreme uh, extremes but recognizing as well as you said that after the fact of course we know but real time it's always hard to call the shots and i think you can you can eyeball through that that line in this in the, in this article right so position yourself being back in 2014 position yourself being in 2022 and see how that kind of moderation of exposure would have felt
0: and i believe the conclusion of the article by the way, which uh, I see now, the website is called returnsources.com. That's where uh, the article is from. But I think actually the the author comes to the conclusion that
1: yes, I agree. at the end of the day, we don't know. right? At the end I of mean, the day,
0: uh, we shouldn't do it. Um, yeah, kind of thing. So exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay. And good. I, and, I, and I think yeah. they come to this conclusion because they they run some analysis and say, okay, if I have like a sixty forty portfolio and I add like you know some trend following to it, and then I moderate the amount of trend following I have as a function of its own trendiness then you end up losing not because trend itself doesn't bring value by being quote-unquote timed, I, I, I guess based on, on that analysis, but rather because whatever you're not allocating to or you're allocating to in a fully funded, uh, on a fully funded basis is going against you. So there's, there's, a, there's a byproduct of underperformance that is not coming from trend following. And I think to your point, we should think of it holistically in a, in a, in a portfolio context, not in isolation. Correct.
0: Okay, cool. That leaves us with a few minutes just to touch on the last one, which came from a website called ai-cio.com. Um, It's called What is the Future of the 60-40 Portfolio? Obviously not a new theme to uh, to our listeners. Um, was there anything in this particular article about that um, that you found? I think it deals with the point that many pensions have changed their asset allocation in over the years. Uh, and and so the sixty forty looks a little bit different now, but maybe you can summarize it much better than I can.
1: Yes, and I think, and I I hope I have not misread that, but I think the AI uh cio dot is alternative investments rather than artificial intelligence. So oh, no, not nothing sure about is. machine learning. Nothing that we're going to, to talk about now. machine learning here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you no, know, they start by saying you know sixty forty has been the asset allocation. Paradigm for years and years and years, and and obviously 60 means equities, 40 means bonds. Uh, but if anything, these days, and they quote a number of um, a number of um, of industry surveys, uh, has become more like 60 is my public assets. So my equities and bonds are the 60 part of my hundred dollars, and the remaining 40 is private assets. I know uh, by the name of private equity and real estate and private credit and so on and so forth. And, and, and I think the point they're trying to make is that alternatives have started becoming much more of an, in, of an integral component in asset allocation. Um, and I would add to it, it's not just the illiquids or the private assets. I think liquid alternatives, trend following is certainly one of them. But there's a variety of in discretionary macro, alternatives premium all those liquid and illiquid alternatives have started becoming more of of, of essential components um, in a broader asset allocation sense. I don't think that necessarily this has been fully deployed or, or um, um, I guess, adopted globally, but there are certainly some regions that we see more activity in this regard. The point that I would want to make, and I guess the article talks about the values of of those alternative investments and how much um value they can bring into a 60/40 portfolio, following the um, I guess the lift of the anchored inflation and and the equity bond correlation moving into possibly uncharted territories in the recent years. There's nothing more than than that. It's it's more like a thought piece of of the value of alternatives in whichever form in 60/40. I, I would just go one step further, and and I know it's a bit radical, and we discussed a bit. In the um, you know in the group recording, so I'm not gonna spoil uh, <laughs> spoil that discussion. But in my view, we have been thinking for years how to complement a 60/40. But I haven't seen any radical view coming out and saying, do we have to complement or possibly try to think of ways of replacing it, right? Because I think this article goes halfway through, kind of basically says it used to be 60/40 equities and bonds. How about the 60 becomes the equities and bonds and the 40 becomes the private assets? So, the alternatives. So, somehow out of $100, I'm now allowing 40. That's the article, right? I'm allowing 40 to be alternative. I mean, okay, in some respect, I still have some equity growth risk and so on, but in a, in a much more levered way, if I think of a private equity for, for the sake of argument. So, is it going in the direction of? replacing rather than complementing, it's not anymore the 5% or the 10%, it's about the 40%. So I guess the last point I would want to make here is that 60-40 has become prevalent partly because you're getting compensated for the only two traditional well-understood risk premia that's taking on growth and cyclicality risk, that's equities, and taking on term premium, which is just the compensation for locking in your money for a longer term. That's the term structure of interest rates. And byproduct of that, historically, is that bonds have done the job when equities didn't. So there's this inherent diversification that is purely driven by the anchored inflation, which is not anymore that. But at the end of the day, there could be alternative ways of getting access to growth risk Private equity could be one, Um, you know, volatility selling could be another one. There could be alternative ways of achieving carry or term premium. Private credit can be one, Um, or, or again, looking into more market neutral liquid implementations of carry strategies. You know, I think this year, one of the stronger performance in the alternative space in the liquid uh, side has been FX carry. And how some of the emerging market currencies have significantly outperformed DM, and the spread of the two delivered a beta-neutral, very, very strong performance. And then it's something more defensive, which is also more opportunistic. And here trend following is certainly one uh, that I can easily see as uh, as bringing a lot of value. So I would go one step further, and that is more: is it the forty, or it's even more than that? But then thought through in a way that still the fundamental sources of risk are captured, compensation comes, but the total portfolio is more holistically and holistically designed. But anyway, th- these are my thoughts as I was kind of reading through.
0: No, I think this is great, Nick. It, it kind of uh, sets up 2024 quite nicely, where I'm sure we'll continue to discuss whether uh, alternatives and especially trend following should have a bigger slice of the institutional uh portfolio allocations. And uh even though 6040 has done really well this year, uh and even and, and and to some extent the 40, I think when people listen to our conversation for the next two weeks, the group conversation, um, we're certainly going to raise some concerns about the outlook for this and and in part two, uh so that's for the 30th of December, uh we also all of us have to come out with our outrageous predictions for next year. And uh, I think some of them for sure uh, is related to the 40, uh, no doubt. And so people should look forward to hearing some of of our uh, outrageous predictions. Um, and, and, And actually it's outrageous that we come with predictions because of course we come from the systematic world where we don't make predictions, but there we are. Okay, Nick, this was wonderful as ever. And if uh, all of you listening um, agree with that and I know Nick has a strong following uh, among the top traders uh, community. Um, why don't you go leave us a rating and review on Spotify, on Apple, on Amazon wherever you listen to your uh, podcast, uh, we would so much appreciate uh, this perhaps as a little Christmas gift for the for the wonderful uh, panel of co-hosts that every week show up and uh, deliver some. Really, truly valuable uh, information. With that, as mentioned, just to repeat, next week is part one of our group year-end conversation. First time ever that all nine of us are together uh, in one session. And then the following week, we have part two of that. After that, of course, we will be back to regular programming, kicking the year off uh, with Jem, setting up 2024. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be looking forward to that as well. That's it for today from Nick and me. Thanks ever so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. Until such time, take care of yourself and take care of.